The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. All of us need to be equipped within the Word of God um, in order to really address the real and significant struggles people face. Um, I'm a father of four. My oldest is 12 and my youngest is six. Um, so there were, yeah, we're in, in the midst of actually really, really fun ages. Uh, I've been married for 15 years today. So I heard this is somebody else's anniversary. This is my anniversary. <clears throat> we, we, we're uh, celebrating our anniversary this way. My wife's, uh, thanks. My wife's celebrating it by finishing up VBS yesterday and, and tomorrow morning. And so it's, uh, it's yeah, it's, no, 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 no pity. We're, we got away for, uh, left all four of our kids with aunt and uncle a few uh, weekends ago for, for a weekend. And so we're like, here, you can take them. You, you, they have four kids too. So we're like, what's eight, right? That works. But Tonight, we're going to be discussing a, a really common problem. We're going to be talking about sexual struggles in marriage. Um, and we're going to be talking about both it, it generally and specifically how we have a foundation in order to counsel couples as they struggle in regards to physical intimacy. And, and this is, is really, I think, really, really common in the church. This is really, really common in uh, outside of the church, this is really common just in lives where people have these ideas of how physical intimacy is supposed to be and how easy and simple and uncomplicated it is. But the reality in most people's marriages is, and, and in most counselees' marriages, is that it's a real struggle and can be a real struggle. And this is a, a significant component when we're struggling, when we're, when we're counseling people in, w- through all sorts of different marriage issues. This is, this is and will always be inevitably be a significant part of that process as well. And, and sexual struggles in marriage come from all sorts of different places. They come from everything from physical and, and health problems, from past sin, from selfishness, from idolatry, from um, idolatry of sexual pleasure or idolatry of something that sexual pleasure produces or provides, from lust, from laziness, from all sorts of things. But I, I'm actually going to kind of run on an assumption here, that if you're here right, at this biblical counseling conference, if you have enough interest, enough knowledge, enough understanding of the gospel to say, to, to, to be here, you've probably been equipped to address a lot of the different contributors to sexual struggles and more. A lot of the different sin issues, a lot of the different forms of suffering, but, but there's one significant and really kind of foundational contributor to sexual struggles in marriage that, that I, I would imagine, at least and I've found over the years, that few of us have actually been equipped with. And that's, I mean, before we get into any of the specifics or all of the, the, the application of change in this area in life, it's the most, it's the foundational and fundamental question of what did God create sex for? I think both married people and single people have a lot of confusion because they don't, they actually don't know the answer to the question of what is this about? <clears throat> and I, I think the church has spent a significant amount of time and energy discussing what God glorifying sex is not. 
But I'm afraid it's left a lot of people in our churches uninformed about what God-glorifying physical intimacy in marriage actually is and how to grow in that area of your marriage. Right? In, in the church, we, we, we hear a lot about how sex is not with someone of your same gender. And you're like, the married couple's like, okay, check. Sex is not with someone who's not your spouse. Okay, check. Sex is not pornography. Okay, check. Like, I've checked all the boxes. So then why is it so hard? Right? Why are we struggling so badly in this area? And over the years, I, I've found that, that tons and tons of married couples, tons and tons of people I've counseled, struggle sexually because they have no idea what God created sexuality for. And I think similarly, the universal struggle of those that are single, whether they're, whether they're young and single or, or at any stage in life, I think oftentimes their struggles are complicated and heightened <clears throat> because they don't have a clarity of what this Thing that everybody talks about and that is all over our culture, like what the God-given purpose of it is. And without knowing the, because without knowing the God-given purpose of it, they're left to try to piece together things from what the world says and what they hear Christians around them say. And even the Christians around them, right, like half the things that they say around are jokes. So they don't know what to like how to take it seriously, how, what, what it actually is. I mean, I, I know even just for me, when I had my first sexual experiences as a child, unprovoked un kind of or pursued, I had no idea what the God-given purpose for sex was. And when I became a single young adult, I had no idea what the God-given purpose for sex was. And then I got married 15 years ago today, and on that day, I had no idea what a God-given purpose for sex was. And then I graduated seminary four years later, and I still had no idea what a God-given design for sex was. And, and then I became a pastor, and I still had no idea what the God-given purpose for sex was. And it was at that point that I realized that either I was completely missing something, Either I had, like, missed a class in church or in seminary or something, or we're all really confused, right, about what God created this for. And I, I think most married couples you will counsel with these struggles, they're, 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 they're going to have struggles in the sexual area of their life. Married, married couples tend to have lots and lots of questions about what sex is and the place it should hold in their relationship because to treat it as unimportant kind of seems like a bummer, at least like the way that everybody talks about it or the world portrays it. But to, but to, to treat it as like the most important and greatest thing in the world seems inappropriate because... That's the way the sinful world portrays it. But to ask any questions about it is just downright embarrassing. Which is why we as counselors need to be able to provide a safe place. We, we need, I mean, first of all, we need, we need to know ourselves what God says about sex. We need to be able to be comfortable with what God says about it enough to facilitate conversations 
And we, need to, and we need to exercise discretion and wisdom, not getting into the specifics that belong between the two of them alone, but also providing clarity and guidance that can be genuinely helpful. I mean, we'll talk about this later, but like if you're, and I mean, if, if there's all sorts of questions out there, like if your counselees, if somebody you're counseling, if somebody you're discipling in any format, can't talk to you about sex, then who in the world are they going to talk to? Right? We, we need to be in a place where we can create these safe places that actually, and, and that don't just pool ignorance. Right? Oftentimes, when people have questions, they just ask, like, other people that have questions, too. Like, I don't know. Well, I don't know either. Okay. Like, I, I guess we'll, I guess we shouldn't say anything. So, so what is sex? Well, I mean, if someone were to ask you, right, if, a, if somebody you were discipling said, wait, I mean, like, what is sex? Like, why did God create it? Like, would you have a, like, obvious answer to give them? Would you be like, of course, oh, I know exactly what to tell you, right? If they were to ask you, why is it so powerful and so enjoyable and so complex? Like, what, why is that? Why would God, why did God create something like that? How would you answer them? John Piper puts it this way. In answer to that question in, in their book, uh, Sex and the Supremacy of Christ, which he edited with uh, Justin Taylor, he writes, God created us in his image, male and female, with personhood and sexual passions so that when he comes to us in this world, there would be these powerful words and images to describe the promises and pleasures of our covenant relationship with him through Christ. Would that have been your answer? What? Why did God create sex? You know what? Because he wants to teach us about himself. Like, is that what would have rolled off your tongue? Because I think that to the extent that it doesn't means that oftentimes it's... The fact is, like, actually, we've misunderstood what sex is for. And what most fundamentally God created it for. Piper is saying that God created sex as a means by which he may communicate to us what our relationship with him is like. It's about God. And why shouldn't it be? I mean, like, that can sound a little weird, but the only reason it's weird is because it's sex. If there was any other area of your life, and I stood up at a counseling conference and said, that area of your life is all about God, you'd be like, yes, yes, yes. I'm like, and sex, that's about God. And you're like, what? Wait a second, right? Because we've somehow like divorced it as if it's a different part of life, right? That doesn't share this God, the God-centeredness of everything else that is us as his image bearers. Like, we are his image bearers completely. We aren't like his image bearers and then he like tagged on sex like for some other reason. Right? We're his image bearers completely in our personhood. And so practi- while practically sex is about us and about a relationship, ultimately it's about God. And so we, we see in Scripture, I mean, well, Colossians 1 
16, right? For by him all things, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Which means even physical intimacy in marriage was created through him and for him, for his glory. We see in in the scriptures that that God's glory is demonstrated through sex in kind of four fundamental purposes. I want to look briefly at these four fundamental purposes of sex. First of all, that sex is a means of covenantal union. Second of all, that sex is a means of mutual pleasure. Third, that sex is an expression of the marital relationship. And fourth, that sex is an expression of the relationship between Christ and the church. And I call these, we're going to look at each one of these individually, but I call these fundamental purposes because they lay the foundation for our understanding of God's design for, for um, sex that glorifies God. And what, by, by these fundamental purposes, I mean that, that if any one of them is missing, then the engagement that is taking place fails to be glorifying to God in the way it was designed to be. That if any one of them is missing, it fails to glorify God in the way it was designed to be, right? Physical intimacy in marriage without union fails to glorify God in the way it was designed to be. Physical intimacy in marriage without pleasure fails to glorify God the way it was designed to be. Similarly, without an expression, it fails to be glorified. And this is to distinguish from these fundamental purposes from what I would call the secondary purposes of sex. Right? Some of the second, and I think sometimes when, when somebody tells us what, or asks us what is sex for, we tend to jump to the secondary purposes. Right? One of the secondary purposes is that it's protection against sin. Right? This is like... Um, in Corinthians, right, it talks about how, how engaging in sex in marriage protects you from sexual sin outside of marriage. Well, yes, it does that, but that's not what it was designed for, right? That's a secondary purpose, right? I mean, in one sense, it's what it's designed for and how it, how it functions here, but it's a secondary purpose. And another secondary purpose, I believe, is procreation, I think procreation is a secondary, it's a a blessing attached to physical intimacy. Because to to call procreation a fundamental purpose means that, that unless your engagement results in procreation, it can't glorify God, right? Again, the fundamental purpose is the ones without which it fails to glorify God. And that would mean that if you, that that if, if a couple was sterile, then they couldn't glorify God, right? If a couple was beyond the years, childbearing years, they couldn't glorify God, right? If a couple, for one reason or another, chose to not have children during a season, they couldn't glorify God. And that's obviously not true. We we see that's not true in Scripture. Scripture doesn't call us to only engage in physical intimacy and marriage for the sake of procreation, right? Procreation is a blessing that God attaches and is deeply interwoven with physical intimacy, but it's not one of the fundamental purposes without which the engagement fails to glorify God. So, what are these these fundamental purposes then? First, and and I think these, why why I think this is so important, we're gonna get to kind of the implications of this for counselees, but I think that this is what I think is so important to help explore 
Like what, what our counselees need when they're struggling, just when your counselees are struggling in any, I'm sorry, I started three different sentences there. I'll get to the one I want, I promise. All right, when, when our counselees are struggling in any area in life, right, they need some practical helps, but what they need more than anything is a theology of that area, right? Somebody's anger, they're struggling with anger. Like they need help to like calm them down, they need practical, you know, tools to identify what's going on, but ultimately, like at the, at the core, what they need is a theology of anger. Right? How does anger come from our hearts? How does God, how does it relate to how God has called us to live? And similarly, in our counsel, our counsel has to be built on and provide for others really a theology of physical intimacy. Like what did God create this for? And so, first, God created sex to be a means of union. It's a means of union. This is why Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, obviously, this means more than just physical, but it sure as heck doesn't mean less. In the very beginning, God created man and a woman with all the traits humanity, all the traits of their humanity, including their sexuality. Though the physical act of becoming one, through the act of, of physical act of becoming one flesh, the husband and the wife are brought together in a union that includes and affects their whole person. Right? This is the whole basis for Paul's warning against sexual activity outside of marriage in 1 Corinthians 6. Right? In 1 Corinthians 6, he warns about sexual immorality. And he says, in, in, starting with verse 14, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Right? That's not what it was created for. He says, but, the, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up the body with power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the member of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Right? He's saying that the, the act of sexual intimacy is uniquely created that even sex as our world would call it casual, as sex with a prostitute, something still happens. They still become one flesh. In fact, this union or this bonding is is represented in us hormonally in the way we were created. Right, by the release of oxytocin in women or vasopressin in men. Hormones that, 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 that draw us and connect us together. Uh, oxytocin, for example, causes the sensation of relational bonding and is released in very specific ways in women. It's released during labor. It's released during breastfeeding. It's released during meaningful, intimate touch. And it's released during sexual intercourse. Right? God created our bodies to have certain hormones that are only released during childbirth, nursing, or sexual engagement. Why? Because he's designed this type of engage, physical engagement with one another to not just be physical, but to be a means, not the means, not the only means, not the ultimate means, but a means of union 
between a husband and a wife. It's part of what God has designed to unify them. Sex is a means of union. Secondly, sex was designed and created to be a means of mutual pleasure. I mean, as Christians, even, even with our single friends, family members, counselees, it, it doesn't help us to pretend that sex is not pleasurable. Right? God created it to be pleasurable. He created pleasure to bless us and glorify himself. And pleasure serves as a powerful communicator of the other purposes of sex. Isaiah 62, verse 5 says, For as young, a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the, just as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Again, he says, look, wait, this, this is to teach you about something bigger. Proverbs 5, 18 and 19, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated, always in her love, right? These are, these are, are, are statements of, of genuine and really overwhelming pleasure. And, and I think it's, it can be helpful to, the hype in the world says that, that that pleasure is found outside of the confines of marriage, right? Pleasure is found in other places. Pleasure is found in, 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 in creating your own purpose for sex. Pleasure is not found in God's purpose for sex. But the, the exact opposite is true. Right? God, did, God created it to be pleasurable on purpose. And so... Studies have shown repeatedly that Bible-believing Christian married couples have more sex and enjoy sex more than their non-Christian counterparts. The world portrays the opposite, but it's just not true. Which I think, and, and to the extent that you know that the Christians around you are struggling, like what do you think the world's like? Right, like, like trying to find a hookup on a Friday night like, is not fundamentally enjoyable. Like, there's so much brokenness in our world that has been, like, painted over by Hollywoodized depictions that we have to provide people clarity for what God says about, about this area of our lives. Thirdly, Sex was designed to be an expression of the marital relationship. And let, let me ex explain what I mean by that. By an expression of the marital relationship. By an expression, I, I mean, an expre the definition of an expression is a, is a lively or vivid representation of meaning, sentiment, or feeling. Essentially, our sexuality gives voice to many different aspects of our marital relationships that otherwise can't be fully like, described. Uh, th think about music, right? Like music is, an, is something that is an expression, right? You can, you, you can say, this is why the Psalms were written. I, I mean, really, any art form is like this. Right? The Psalms were written because you could say that God is sovereign and he's in control and he loves his people, but to put it poetically and to draw it out and to describe his incredible loving kindness and how he's a, a, a rock, on which you can stand, right? How, how, how you're, you're nestled underneath him like, a, like an, underneath his eagle's wings. 
right, expresses the truth in a unique and uniquely powerful way, right? This is why songs and music are so powerful, right? You can express a truth, or you can put it in a song and put it poetically, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my gosh, I, like, I feel that's amazing. I mean, and, and I mean, this, is, this is true with, with any type of, of truth, that there are unique ways that, get, that it get expressed that connect to our hearts and help us realize those things in, in uniquely powerful ways. And sex is an expression, it's a unique expression of many of the dynamics of the marital relationship. Sexuality gives expression to the intimacy and vulnerability of marriage. It's one thing to say to your spouse, I'm vulnerable with you. It's another thing to like be naked together, right? Like you feel that, like that vulnerability, like, whoa. It's one thing, you could have said I'm vulnerable, but this is like we're expressing it. Right? Like, this is really vulnerable. This is really intimate, right? That's what makes it, that's why, why in, in newlyweds, particularly, I mean, this is, gosh, one of the best things we could do for our people is as they prepare for marriage, not just like give them some practical tips for the wedding night, but give them a theology, right, of what they're about to endeavor and why what they're, what they're going to experience is so powerful and unique and even difficult in some ways. Right? Because it expresses intimacy and vulnerability in powerful ways. Song of Songs, just all over, paints an incredible picture of the mutuality and intimacy and passion and ecstasy of the marital relationship. I mean, have you, have you ever wondered why our sexuality can produce such instantly euphoric feelings? Like physical sensation. Like, I mean... Like, if, if you're just, like, standing back and looking at humanity, like, that's weird. Right? Like, this, like, instantly, like, instantly, like, like euphoric physical sensations. Like, why did God do that? And I think most of the time, people believe God did it because he just wanted to, like, throw us a bone. Like, just give us a perk. Like, here's, this is, this is my wedding present to you. Right? I love you. You should, like, enjoy it, right? Like, I, I, think, I think most Christians get married thinking that sex is their wedding present from God. And that's about as deep as their theology goes, right? But it's not just, it's not just this, like, like, great, like, perk you get. It's, it's because, I mean, it's not because it's a perk. It's also not because, you, he, you know what? They're really not going to want to have kids, so I better make this enjoyable. Otherwise... <laughs> Otherwise, they're not going to have any children, right? Like, I think these are the types of things that we think, but obviously this isn't the case. It's because God wanted to express the joy and ecstasy of what he intended through marriage in a powerful and tangible way. He wanted us to to, to be able to say, no, experience, like, I love you. I enjoy you. And express that enjoyment between a husband and a wife in unique and uniquely powerful ways. Which leads us to our, our last point, which is that I believe sex is an expression then of the relationship between Christ and the church. Right? If our sexuality is a powerful expression of the marital relationship, what is the marital relationship supposed to be an expression of? 
If we've read Ephesians, we know the answer to that question, but oftentimes people are like, boy, that can't extend. That's just like marriage generally, (laughs) right? But the reality is God created physical intimacy to remind us and teach us about what being in his presence ultimately will be like. Not in a not in a physical sense, but in what it expresses. Right? This is why, I mean, he says in Ephesians 5, this mystery is profound, and it is. But the marital relationship, and sexuality specifically, was designed by God as a way to communicate his love, his passion, his intimacy, his joy with a human race that was created in his image. Sex isn't about Christ and the church and its actions, obviously, But sex is is about Christ and the church and its expressions and its effect. The vulnerability of shameless nudity is a way that God communicates to us the safety of our vulnerability with him. That we can be, we, we cannot just say, oh yeah, I'm vulnerable with you, God, but we can be completely vulnerable before a holy God and be safe cared for. The intimacy experienced in our sexual relationships communicates in a powerful way what it means to be united with Christ. The intimacy of being united with Christ is not just an idea. It's not just a theological like, like category. It's a reality. There is no possible, possibly more intimate relationship than what we have with our creator through Jesus. The ecstasy experienced in sex, it communicates a glimmer of what it will be like as his church to spend eternity in his presence. To allow physical intimacy in marriage to point us to heaven is, a, is, is following the, the design of the maker. Right? Not to say, oh, this is heaven on earth, because it's not like the ultimate pinnacle. There's... there's, there's all sorts of enjoyable things that we experience on earth, but all of them are meant to point us to what it's going to be like to be in his presence forever, united with him, vulnerable with him, and enjoying and glorifying him. And in this way, everything, everything that we engage in and everything that a counselee, that a couple you're counseling, everything that they are engaged in, particularly when it comes to physical intimacy, flows from either an accurate or inaccurate understanding of what God's design for physical intimacy is. Because if sex is a means of union, then they, like, gosh, I think that so often when couples are struggling in physical intimacy, their goal is just how do we make this better and how do we like, enjoy it more? And as a counselor, your goal becomes how do we just make this better and how do you enjoy it more, right? Because, and, and you know that in any other area in life, you should go deeper than that, right? Like if somebody's like, you know what, 
I'm having trouble at school, and I just want to know how to fix this and how to enjoy it more. And you'd be like, okay, those are okay goals, but there's something more here that we need to talk about, right? If somebody was like, is constantly angry at their kids, they're like, I just, I just want to fix this, and I just want to enjoy them more. You're like, okay, that's good, but we need something deep, right? There's a, it's a broader vision for life than that, than just how do I fix the problems and enjoy life more, right? We, we know that in all of life, and just as it's true in every other area of life, it's true in physical intimacy as well. Because if sex is a means of union, then they should be asking, is our physical intimacy uniting us? If sex is a means of, of pleasure, they, they ought to be asking, is it in any way pleasurable? If sex is an expression of the marital relationship between, uh, first of all, of our marital relationship and ultimately between Christ and the church, we have to ask, what is, and I think this is helpful for couples to ask, what is our physical engagement with one another expressing? Is it expressing our mutual love for one another? Or is it expressing something else? Because just like any other area in life, we will always be expressing something. And it will either be other-focused care and enjoyment and love, or it'll be self-focus. Right? And just like any other area in life, physical intimacy can be a powerful expression of my self-worship which more often than not it is. But what, how, how do we help then, counselees put that into practice? And as I, I, wanna, I wanted to spend some significant time talking about that theology. And that's, some, I mean, that's something I would encourage you even just to, to wrestle with more and more as you like counsel and speak truth to those, to, as, you, as you speak truth to married couples, that you're discipling, that you're counseling, that you're walking through, that, to wrestle through, okay, how is what I am expressing reflecting a deep understanding of what God designed and created this to be? But I want to draw out some principles that, that help, help you put that into practice that can be um, helpful as you counsel couples in this area. The, 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 um, the heading here is 10 Steps to a Beautiful, God-Glorifying Sex Life, <laughs> Applications for Counselees. Steps is probably not quite the right, I, I didn't quite know, it, quite know what to call them, and 10 steps will like get their attention, at least. But the, this is, this isn't, this is, these aren't like steps. This isn't like take one, and then okay, you're done with that, okay, take number two, right? These are just like 10, essentially 10 general principles that derived from this God's design for sex that we can help counselees apply. To, uh, apply. Um, but that didn't fit on the line, so you got 10 steps. <clears throat> Excuse me. Number one, help counselees apply the gospel to their sexual past, present, and future. I mean, this is where we have to start, right? Because we live in a fallen world. And so we can talk about what God designed it to be in Eden, but that's not their reality. Their reality is all the ways that the, that the fallen world around them, that the fallen relationships they've had, and in the, their own fallen heart have shaped a, a, a really messy, if not incredibly painful, past, maybe even present. 
And for those who have suffered sexually or will suffer sexually, either because of the sin of others or simply because of life in a fallen world with a fallen body, we need to make, first make sure that they know that there is hope and redemption for every part of your life, including the sexual part of your life in Christ. Right, Romans reminds us again that we, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, that he will redeem even the darkest parts of our, of our past. I think sometimes when people think about their sexual past, like they think about a lot of their past, and like, okay, God can redeem that, and then they think about their sexual past, and they think about themselves as ruined. But that's not a biblical category. Hopelessly ruined is not a biblical category. In light of the gospel, God takes the things that we soil and mess up and that we on our own ruin, and he redeems them for our good. Colossians 1, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. And for those who have sinned sexually, or when they sin sexually in the future, and pursue self-pleasure or idolatry over God's glory in their sex life, we can tell them that there's hope as well. That God is redeeming you. He is sanctifying you. And he is making you more and more and more into the image of his son, even sexually. So we have to start by helping them and making sure that they know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And just like just like sexuality is a uniquely powerful area that, that we can experience intimacy and enjoyment powerfully, we also experience the brokenness powerfully as well. Experience the hurt powerfully. So we need to take that into consideration and, 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 and massage the truth of the gospel into people's hearts so that they are reminded again and again and again that God's grace is sufficient for all of it. You want a reason why we need to talk about this area of a counselee's life? Because we can talk about all the other areas, but shame can stay rooted in their sexual past in ways that, that just eat at their hearts and their souls, and we need to, to, to help them apply the gospel to every area, including this one. To grow in this area, people need to be saturating themselves in the gospel, applying the truth of the gospel to every aspect of their past and present, even future, resisting the lies that claim that the gospel isn't powerful enough for what they've been through, who they are, or what they've done. So it starts with applying the gospel. And then we can move forward in, that, in, in helping them. What, what do these principles look like in practice? Well, number two, I think it's calling people in married relationships to set their affection on their spouse. If, if, if Physical intimacy is an expression of the marital relationship, then, then they ought to be called to set their affection on the spouse. And this is where I think sometimes people think, oh, like either 
my, either I feel affectionate towards my spouse or I don't. There's nothing I can do about it. Right? But that's not true either. Like God calls us to love proactively, right? The, the one we are called to and we've covenanted to love and to call them to set their affection on their spouse. I mean, this is a model we see in Song of Songs. I mean, right, Solomon and his wife, or the writer of Song of Songs, presumably Solomon, but, but even if not, the, the, the subject of, of, of Song of Songs, Solomon and his wife, we're not literally, objectively, the most beautiful people in the world. Right? Like, have you ever thought about this? Like, you read Song of Songs, and you're like, oh, dang it. I'm the most beautiful person among 10,000? Lucky them. Right? How does that apply to the rest of us? Right? Like, I'm not that good looking, so what is it going to be said about? Right? That, that, that's not the point. Right? It's not because, it's because they chose to set their affection on one another that they could say, behold, you're beautiful, my love. Behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is a flock of goats sleeping down the slopes of Gilead. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you, he says to her. It's not an objective, like, you know what? I have scientifically studied what beauty is and possible flaws, and I have evaluated you, and there is no flaw in you. That's not what he's saying, right? He's not objectively saying there's no flaw in you. He's saying, I've set my affection on you in a way that my desire is for you so that I can say there's no flaw in you. Right, when she says of him, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000, again, he's, he, She's not like, you know what, I have lined up, I have checked out 10,000 men. And I've ranked them all, and you are the top. Right? That's not what she's saying. Right? She's poetically conveying the fact that she set her affection on him. And so, in her eyes, because of her choices, he is distinguished among 10,000. She, she doesn't want the 10,000. She wants him. Why? Because she set affection on him. And it's from having this experience that Solomon did not write later in life that he wished everyone could have a wife like his, right? Later in life, when he wrote the Proverbs, Solomon didn't say, I hope you find someone as beautiful as I did. Then you might be satisfied. That's not what he wrote. He said, Proverbs 5, verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful joy doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Right? He's like, your wife, the wife of your youth. Like, it, 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 he's instructing. He's saying, be intoxicated by your wife, by your husband. Right? Set your affection on them. I think we can call and ought to call spouses to start as they apply to manifest this love by setting their affection on their spouse, by making the, the choice first. So, thirdly, learning their spouse's desires. Every single married person has different desires and a different amount of desire than their spouse. I've met, I've met couples, I've counseled couples where the husband desired physical intimacy more than the wife. I've met couples where the wife desired physical intimacy more than the husband. The one thing I have never met 
is a couple who desired it exactly the same. Like never in all of my years. And I think that's for a number of different reasons. But one of which, even just practically, like if, if they wanted, if they desired sexual intimacy the same all the time, they always like, oh, what a coincidence. Like you are desirous, I'm desirous. Like every, all the time, we desired the same amount. You know what? There would be no difference between selfishness and love. You'd be like, yes, I want to love you. And you're like, I don't know if you're doing this because you love me or because we just happen to be similar. Selfishness would look exactly the same as love. And graciously, God doesn't put us in that position. He puts us in a position where we differ. And differences don't mean mismatched. Differences mean that God's granted us opportunities to express love in unique and uniquely powerful ways. And so we need to teach them and, and help them to, to become students of one another, to learn their spouse's physical desires, to learn their spouse's timing desires, to learn their spouse's personality desires. Ed Wheat, uh, author, once wrote, if you, if you do what comes naturally in lovemaking, almost every time you will be wrong. Right, so this isn't about trying to do what comes naturally. It's about doing what comes lovingly. It's applying Philippians 2.4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. So learn your spouse's desires and then consider your spouse's desires. Right? This is why 1 Corinthians 7 tells us, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, the wife does. This is because we we're, we're to take one another's desires into consideration and to care for and love one another. And I think that the, the, the thing, the question couples ask all the time is, okay, well, but, but what do we do when we have differing desires? Right, like as if it's the like, worst possible thing that like, they might have different desires either on a particular day or just even generally. But somehow they don't feel that panicked when they have different desires in all the other areas of their lives, <laughs> right? I mean, what do you do when you have different desires? You do the same thing you do when you have different desires and when you want to go somewhere different for dinner, right? When you have, when you have different desires about career, about where to live, about, about what, like, wh how you want to spend your time, about where you want to go on vacation. Like, you have different desires in all sorts of areas. And so what do you do in those areas? You, you talk about it openly, honestly, as you seek to sacrifice and serve and love one another, and so we have to, again, we have to create a safe space where we can invite them in to actually talk about it, right? Actually have conversations that speak honestly and openly about not just their desires for where to go on vacation, but their desires in physical intimacy as well so that they can seek to sacrifice for and serve and love one another. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's just helping them to apply the words of love to their physical intimacy in 1 Corinthians 13, that in regards to their sex lives, love is patient and love is kind and it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, love isn't arrogant or rude, it does, love does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful, 
It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth, and love bears all things. It believes all things, it hopes all things, endures all things. Again, we, if, we, if we take sex out of the like special category and bring it just back into a part of relationships and a part of life, all of a sudden the, so much of what scripture says about how we're to relate to one another just generally applies here as well. Fifthly, I, I seek to tell counselees to, to learn their spouse's anatomy. And then this is, this is, about, this is as specific as I'm going to get, but I think it's important for particularly, I, I, I want to say particularly young married couples, newly married couples, but even for couples that have been married a long time, that, like, to, to ask them, like, where did you learn what you know about the anatomy of the opposite sex. Unfortunately, more often than not, it's media or movies or pornography. It's where they learned what they think they know. They're almost always male-centric depictions of sex. But the reality is anatomically, right, men and women are created to enjoy physical intimacy differently. And so, and then there's all sorts of resources out there. I, I, I tend to be, because Newer books tend to be, I don't want to generalize, but tend to be more sensationalized. I like, I like to use older books in this category. But things like, like Ed Wheat's Intended for Pleasure or Tim LaHaye wrote a book on this. Yes, that same Tim LaHaye, like the one who wrote Left Behind. Before he wrote Left Behind, he wrote a book, on uh, a Christian book on sex um, called The Act of Marriage. But it's actually, like, they're actually helpful resources even for them to just get like, just like understand some basics and learn about one another, to open up the, the lanes of communication. Number six, learn the true biblical guidelines for sex. I mean, there are biblical guidelines for physical intimacy, right? God has put a fence around our sexuality. But the fence isn't, and I, I think the world teaches us, and I mean, and right in the last 40 to 50 years, the world has done everything possible to teach us that the fences limit our enjoyment, right? This is the, it's the sexual revolution and everything since then. The fences limit your enjoyment, and it is just a lie from Satan, right? It is absolutely a lie. Like, the fences that God has created, they're like a fence in, in, in somebody's front yard that, that, that a father builds in his front yard so that the kids can play in it without concern and truly enjoy. Like, without a fence in the front yard, if you're living on a busy street, without a fence in the front yard, kids can't enjoy the front yard. Right? Because they, 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 they're, they're always going to be nervous. You're, you're running out like something's going to happen. But the fence creates the freedom for them to actually enjoy it. And there are things that Scripture and its principles explicitly forbids. Because sex is a means of union, an expression of the marital union between two people. It's forbidden to engage in any kind of sexual acts with any more or less than that number of people. Two. Sexual immorality, sexual activity is outside of God's express design for one man and one woman in the context of covenant marriage. And so we need to help them understand that and recognize what are the implications of that for them. At the same time, 
Well, I, I mean, and in addition, there are also sexual activities that while not explicitly or necessarily forbidden in Scripture, in scripture also are, are probably significantly unwise. I, like I, I put, I, I think of, and, and this is, again, like talking with, with couples and counseling with couples, the world just has all sorts of different ideas, and they're going to hear them. I mean, but because before they talk to you about it, they're going to have Googled it. Right? Like, there's no way they've thought, they're like, you know what, I thought to talk to you about this, and, you know, I haven't done any, I haven't had any thought about it before. No, like, before they talk to you about it, they're going to have information from other places. And, and this is where they've got all sorts of different ideas, even ideas like role-playing, right? Like, oh, you know what, things aren't working, so we decided to role-play. Hey, Scripture doesn't forbid that. I'm not saying, like, that's absolute, but, like, you want to talk about wisdom? Like, if sex is meant to be a means of union between you two people, like, pretending to be somebody else probably doesn't help facilitate that. Right? Again, like, how do we think through these things in wisdom and help others to, to think through these things? Again, because if they can't have this conversation with you as their discipler, as their counselor, they're not going to have it with anybody else. And they're going to get their information from all sorts of different places. They're going to get their, I mean, they're going to get their information. The, the majority of people you counsel, more than half of them will have looked at pornography. Unfortunately, in our world, it is like heartbreaking. But the reality is they will have. And so if they can't talk to you about it, this is where they're getting their ideas from. So at the same time, there are other couples who will take the fence God has made and then build fence upon fence upon fence upon fence upon fence upon fence, and they're gonna have like a three by three square. They're like, we don't understand why it's not very fun to play in here. Right? We ought to consider that there are some examples of sexual activity that are biblically permissible and encouraged that in the church and in people can inappropriately view as dirty or wrong. Right? That, that, that genuinely enjoying one another isn't a bad thing. And there's going to be couples that grow up in particularly strict Christian cultures that we need to help to think through those things biblically, to have actually biblical guidelines. And because the, usually those, 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 those limitations are created because they never thought of sex as something that God created for a purpose. They just all, like, what sex is, is a huge danger, just, and something that you could totally blow it in unless you are like absolutely, 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 absolutely careful about everything. As counselors, we need to be biblically informed not, and not simply place our preferences or our own thoughts on those we counsel. Because they're getting what's okay and what's not from the world. They're getting what's okay and what's not from broad Christian culture. And we need to be the ones to have these conversations with them in a biblically informed way, the guidelines. Just a, a few more as we kind of wrap up. But number seven to teach counselees to recognize the importance of frequency. I'll tell you this much. When I counsel couples, that is as specific as I will get. They're like, what do you mean by that? I'll just repeat it. I mean, recognize the importance of frequency. 
Well, I, I, I like, I mean, how often does that mean? I just, I just mean recognize the importance of frequency, right? Like, I, that there's, that there's not like, I, I'm not saying that like, that, that, that like there is a frequency that for every couple is like the, the you know, the, the sweet spot that, 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 that is what, makes health, what means health in your marriage. And I, I don't think that's there. If God wanted to be that specific, he would have gotten that specific. But if physical intimacy is a means of union, if it's an expression of our marital love for one another, if it's meant to teach us and guide us about God and his church, if it's meant to, to be a, a pleasurable unifying experience between us, then unless there are factors that absolutely prohibit it, and sometimes there are, like factors in life that, that make it not possible, but unless that's the case, then it should be a priority in marriage. Then as, whether as Young couples, and, and even, I, I mean, this is, this is more so a conversation I have to have with older couples, and couples that are significantly older than I, do, than I am, that I have these conversations with, and say, let, let's, let's look at this, and let's, let's ask the question, just like you want to ask the single person who wants to sleep with their boyfriend, why? I think we need to ask other couples that are like, yeah, we've just kind of moved on from that stage in our life, we need to ask them, Why? Is it for a God-glorifying reason or a reason that God has implemented on your life or is it just because of some really self-focused reason? It makes me think of 1 Corinthians 7, 3, which I find to be one of the most, somehow it's been like one of the most difficult to translate well verses in all of Scripture. The ESV, which I love, Translates it, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife of her husband. Isn't that romantic? Like, conjugal rights. Like, that's one way to, I guess, put it. Um, The NASB, a little bit better, like, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, like, I got, like, I get, honey, I'm home. Fulfill your duty tonight. Okay. And the NLT, uh, which, which is, you know, kind of a little bit more readable, says the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs and the wife her husband. I think in some ways, like, that's closer, but now we're getting into, like, needs. Like, needs isn't in the text, and we're kind of establishing. The world loves to establish sex as a need, right? And I'm not sure. Is there... One of, the, one of the translations, well, I probably shouldn't call it that, but one of the descriptions that I, that I, I find most helpful is actually the message. And I, I know it, our biblical counseling conferences, we don't often read the message. But it, 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 it describes, I think, the, the point here, even just in a commentary sense, in a way that, that's helpful. It says, the marriage bed is to be a place of mutuality. The husband seeking to satisfy his wife and the wife seeking to satisfy her husband. Marriage is not a place to stand up for your rights. Marriage is just a decision to serve the other, whether in bed or out. That's a great way to put it. To serve one another, both in bed and out. Eighth, as we 
as we go, I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up with these last three real, real quick if you'll uh, um, indulge me. Um, appreciate the importance of foreplay. Um, if sex is about union, then sex is about the whole person. It's not just about an experience. It's not just a physical thing. It's about engaging with one another personally. This Song of Solomon demonstrates this significantly. Probably one of the, the, the most simple ways I've, I've heard this is speaking specifically of men towards women, but I think it goes both directions. But C.J. Mahaney in his book, Sex, Romance, and the Glory of God, says, you have to touch your wife's heart before you can touch her body. Right? And the point is, again, to, to help counselees see that this is about the whole person. Right? This isn't about the act or not the act. This is about engaging the whole person. Number nine, help counselees to identify sex's greatest enemies and address them, right? In each relationship, there's enemies. They just get in the way, right? Busyness, tiredness, individualized entertainment. Individualized entertainment's a big one, right? Like, tell people to put down their iPads and like, if they have to stare at a screen, at least both stare at the same one, right? Let's start there, right? That might even begin to draw you together, right? Not like off in your own worlds, right? Like, Individualized entertainment gets in the way, bad hygiene gets in the way, hopelessness gets in the way. How do you address them and how do you address them as a counselor? And then finally, pray. John 15 reminds us, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Right? If you are desiring for God's will in your marriage, then we can ask him and he does that. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. As a married couple that we are counseling, it is God's explicit desire that, they would, that their physical intimacy would be a means of union, an expression of love, a means of mutual pleasure, and an expression of the love between Christ and the church. So I encourage them to make prayer a part of their preparation for sex. I think too often we enter into the bedroom and like shut the door like God stays outside. Right? God, you're a part of all my life, everything, I wanna do everything for you, I'm gonna live for you, and every moment's for you, clip, except for this. Right, this is like, you, you're not a part of it. But instead, like, inviting, praying for God to work in, in this area in our lives because he designed it, ultimately, to be about him. I think that's what we need to know, and it's what our counselees need to know um, as we walk, walk with them through that. So let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time. Thank you for your grace and your love in our lives. God, thank you for the way that you redeem and work in all of our lives and hearts. Um, God, we just pray for your help and your wisdom as we counsel so many different people in so many different situations, and particularly as we counsel um, marriages where they have all sorts of different struggles that inevitably manifest in this area as well. God, will you grant us wisdom and kindness and um, insight from your word to help us shape the view of both ourselves and those we love and counsel to. God, we praise you for tonight. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, hope you have a good rest of the night. Thank you. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.